Hello and welcome to your local brown feminist. In this podcast, we will have unfiltered, honest and unapologetic conversations about feminism, pop culture and everything intersectional. And I am your host, Prakshi. I'm a student of law, blogger, activist and a proud feminist. In this podcast, I will be interviewing some incredible folks whose work have inspired me so much. These conversations will be fun and candid. So, stay tuned. Thank you for all the love for the debut episode of this podcast. In this second episode, I will be joined by Dr. Varuna Srinivasan. Dr. Varuna is a queer immigrant, South Asian woman of color living in the United States. She's a public health researcher, writer, and activist working around sexual and reproductive health and justice. Varuna was named Woman of Courage by Serena Williams in a Vogue magazine feature. We discuss everything about intersectional identities within feminism, taboo around female sexuality, patriarchy in South Asian culture, and so much more. This conversation is filled with personal stories and anecdotes from both our lives. So, make sure you listen till the very end. Thank you so much, Dharna, for speaking with me. So honored and grateful that you agreed to be on my podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I've been following your work for some time. I remember I followed you when you had some thousand followers and now seeing you grow has been such an honor for me and I keep learning so much. Yeah, I didn't expect it to sort of uh take off in the way that it would, um but it's been a very exciting journey. Yeah. So, let's delve into, you know, a little your growing up years. Because right now, I see you as this woman who's doing so much work around uh, sexual and reproductive health. But what was growing up in India like? You know, did you ever get sex education in school? What was your home environment like? Did you have open conversations even about that? Absolutely not. I think that's uh, <laughs> pretty much every every girl's uh, reality growing up in India. I think that yeah. you know, when I got my period, my mom was celebrating. You know, because it's a sign of fertility. um you know and i think that in our south indian tamil culture um usually they have a big function and they celebrate that moment um and you know my mom was just like trying to explain to me how like reproduction works my mom is definitely a little bit more liberal than the rest of my family um mm-hmm. i don't think that my dad or anyone else in my family sort of had these conversations with me it was always like you know hush hush not you know don't talk too much about your period don't talk about your bra in front of anybody um so there were definitely these rules around the house and in school it was kind of the same you know like i think uh you're not allowed to talk about your period you're not allowed to sit next to boys you, you know sex education is is like obsolete this literally no <laughs> sex education um So that's kind of what my reality was. I think a lot of that has shaped who I am today and you know my it has informed my advocacy and my activism. Hmm. Yeah, I I don't really relate because I think that's what it is to most homes in India. 
that I remember I went to an all girls school and still like everybody the faculty the people who would run the school it was just women around and still we wouldn't like say the word period out loud and now when I look back I was like what was wrong with us but yeah. that was the reality <laughs> did you did you have any restrictions for say that you know you can't spray during your periods or you know the stupid uh, rules that people ha- usually follow did you have to follow all of that So I grew up in a uh, upper class Hindu family and I don't practice Hinduism that's something that I have given up um but mm. I think that Hinduism itself imposes a lot of restrictions on women right and I think a lot of their mm. rules so it was often don't go into the temple you know not that I ever mm. wanted to go but it was still uh you know I remember having an argument with my grandmother about Sabrimala you know that women aren't allowed during their uh from the time that they get their period till so women mm. who are in menopause and and girls who haven't gotten their period yet are allowed inside the temple so this is sort of mm. setting a precedent right that like women who menstruate are dirty and that's essentially mm. what i was told is that it's unclean you're dirty you can't really go in um you know those are kind of the rules but i've heard it it's been a lot more strict for other people like i had mentioned before my mom is is very liberal my my parents you know didn't really force a lot of that onto me in terms of you know like they would say oh on the fourth day just have a bath and you can go to the temple or be a part of the function mm-hmm. um, yeah yeah i think for someone who is a little bit more religious you know it, it maybe matters to them it didn't matter so much to me um but you mm-hmm. we've heard all of the you know like don't play too many sports on your period uh you know and yeah but for the most part i never had you know that i the major restrictions that most other women have yeah so i kind of relate because i uh, so my family is very religious you know so i had the whole temple and don't treat restrictions for some time and it didn't make sense to me so i just followed because i got my period very early i was like 10 i think i was 10 years old so mm-hmm. i didn't realize i didn't question anything so i followed for some time and then it, when it started making sense So the thing with my family is that they sit down and have those conversations. So I was the person who sat them down and I was like, you know, this is not how it works and I want to go to the temple if I want to. If I don't want to, I don't want to go. So they kind of slowly started unlearning and that I think is a huge privilege considering so many people just do not have access. I mean, last year I was part of a menstrual hygiene management fellowship. and what i figured to research and talking to people was crazy shocking like women in india do not have access to period products water even like sanitation facilities like toilets so it's kind of really scary so the socio cultural you know taboo just gets coupled with the policy inefficiency also there are like girls who drop out of millions of girls who drop out of school Every year, because of like when they start menstruating, and that's ridiculous. I think sanitation has always been a big issue. I think that's also a systemic issue, right? Because I think yeah. there's not a very healthy way to dispose of sanitary napkins, and of course, you've seen that you know in a, in a caste system that uh, certain people are the ones who are pushed into jobs of cleaning out yeah. sanitation and being exposed to those harmful chemicals that are in your pads. um are really harmful to their health in general um so that's all another systemic issue i mean i i i would in my activism i like to take you know a really like 
a bigger f- systemic framework approach i think that in addition to education there also has to be change in policy there has to be change in you know like you said the socio cultural aspects of a community you know why do they believe the way that they do um and of course like the abolition of the caste system uh you know yeah. and increasing access to you know, removing the period tax increasing access to periods um i remember when i was in school when i was telling my principal that there was no you know sanitary way to dispose of your pads i remember her telling me that i was lucky enough to have access to a bathroom and while that may be true i think that we just need to normalize that you know that we deserve to be taken care of our bodies and to dispose of our materials in in a healthier way um that's a memory that also has stuck with me <laughs> throughout my journey yeah i i started a campaign uh, like last year it was an online petition regarding uh, you know disposal of uh, sanitary sanitary waste and the easier part was getting support from people online you know my petition got 80000 signatures but after 6 months of campaigning when i finally set up the meeting with my city mayor to go and have a word with him tell him about my campaign mm-hmm. i was in that room and there was just men around and they felt uncomfortable listening to me talking about it and i was like how do we make things accessible if the whole system is run by men who do not even understand the problem oh my god that is so true dead on yeah, yeah. so there's just so much work to be done i mean really really yes that's <laughs> that's why i tell everybody who's like listening to any podcast or anytime i talk i'm always like you know it's your job uh, and your responsibility as a citizen of any country to be more involved in the political structure and you know do not say oh, it's only for older rich men um you know we are seeing more and more that if you harness the power of the community and the you know community organizing i'm sure that we can replace them with people like yourself you know like it i think that would be a dream for you even i don't know if it is prakshi but i'd love to see you in positions of leadership i think that you know people who care who are able to mobilize the community are really the ones that should be in charge yeah i feel like that's what i've always been so I, when i started studying law in school uh, i thought that that you know way i could create change and then in law school i realized you know the system is so problematic that solving individual cases would not really lead to anything big now i'm you know looking at public policy as a career because uh, i i believe sustainable policy change can really do the difference i i appreciate individual efforts but you know we can do so much with individual effort policy change is really crucial absolutely you're looking at the macro lens um <clears throat> macro yeah. level change um yeah and i respect that so i mean also when i introduce you i say that you're a queer asian woman of color right so when you moved to the united states how did you navigate through you know it all you know your identities that were overlapping because when we talk about intersectional feminism we talk about how all these identities overlap upon one another and pose a very complicated kind of situation so how do you navigate through it all yeah i often say that you know it's a, it's a very nuanced position because i have you know in india i come from a very class and caste privilege i am yeah uh, been in a structure that is very oppressive to a lot of other people and when i moved to the the united states um there are other 
structures that are oppressive to me um yeah. and i think it's you know i think i have learned to stand up for myself and i've learned to embrace different parts of my identity so you know part of that is also like giving sort of standing up to the the hindu you know upper caste patriarchal structures that deem that women should you know marry into caste that should behave yeah. a certain way that should be cis heteronormative um i think that coming out as bisexual has been liberating for me and to you know use that as part of my identity and inform who i am um and what i believe in you know to say that's why every time i introduce myself i say yeah i'm a queer south asian immigrant woman but i also try to make sure that you know i have you know cis het privileges i have you know i am able bodied i am thin i am fair skinned um a lot of those things you know work to my advantage and you know i i think another thing is i think often in the us we are seen as the model minority um so my racism the racism and you know sex the sexualization i have experienced isn't as bad as what southeast asians or east asians have um dealt mm-hmm. with or what black women or non-binary persons have been dealing with um i think that you know i i think that sort of made it easier for me to stand up for myself in terms of you know that i i have privilege that i can use for the better um you know yeah. talking out online and and using that as a a force uh, you know a change for good yeah i feel like when you mention uh, that you know you talk about your caste privilege uh i feel like the problem in india with regard to patriarchy it is people read ambedkar which i really wish everybody does read Mm-hmm. is that the caste gender nexus is so complicated and that's how a lot of patriarchal notions come from you know the whole uh, the purity attached to a woman's body or controlling a woman's sexuality you know who you can marry yeah and what the, that the whole uh, i feel the motivation behind endogamy is reproduction of the caste system so that the caste system keeps on continuing absolutely so for the sake of for the sake of maintaining casteism a lot of patriarchal and gendered notions have been perpetuated yeah absolutely i think that that uh, 100% i think you have you have said that quite eloquently but i also want to point out that we're two i'm at least an upper caste woman talking about this and my understandings of this conversation come from um you know what i've learned from you know Dr. Suraj uh and you know Tenmori Sandararajan and um yeah and a lot of other like dalit activists who inform my work um and i yeah. and you know they have also said that the caste system thrives on the oppression of women and this you know the control of our sexuality and the control of who we marry and where we go and abolishing the caste system is central to you know feminism and equality for everyone yeah absolutely i feel even as a uh, you know i'm not a brahmin but i'm savarna so not lower caste i i try my level best to not speak on issues which relate to dalit women i try to listen more and pass the mic because i feel like we is the uh, Savarna people, we have such a tendency of grabbing the mic and yeah. behaving, you know, behaving in our savior complex. If you're doing some great work, 
by not being cast I was like that's not really a big deal So yeah, there's so much I'm learning to be done. Oh, yeah, I think that's part of like my journey as well on Instagram. I'm like I have to, I want to stay in my lane, um, and yeah. continue to do the work of you know dealing with my own casteist family, um, you know, yeah. unlearning the the teachings that I have had. I think that I have a lot of privilege, and how can I be a, an ally and also like propping up other Dalit and Bahujan and Adivasi people in my own community. and you know passing the mic i definitely think it's it's something that has to be done every single day every single minute of every single day um yeah i mean unlearning is such a huge part of activism for me because i remember i keep saying this that i used to call myself a feminist at 13 and today i call myself a feminist but my definition has evolved so much i had no idea the role that these sub identities face and how crucial that is so unlearning is i mean so important is you know week ago there was this uh, ritual and ceremony which is pretty big in india i mean you you would know it's called shivratri where you literally pour milk on a shivling praying and hoping for a good husband that you get wow right that's the ritual <laughs> that's the ritual and i remember uh, me doing it for the longest time Because I just didn't want to fight and like have a fight with people in our family. I'm like, I can't do this. You know, let's just do it and get done with it. But like, since a couple of years, I was like, I'm not doing this. You know, you do whatever. This is so ridiculous and patriarchal. Where you just want to save a woman's life revolves around marriage, and that's the end goal of it all. You don't pay for anything else. But you know, you need to sit and pray for like a husband. That's So ridiculous. I know, right? I mean, it starts with the family. I feel like the first step is starts with the family to have those uncomfortable conversations and telling that you know you not do this. Yeah, it's definitely taken me a lot, a lot to learn. I think that all of us are, you know, racist, colorist, casteist, you know, and have the patriarchal and misogynistic ideologies in our mind. You know, we are often growing up, we have shamed other women. You know, we have called our darker-skinned. Yeah. friends you know derogatory names um we you know when we watch bollywood we sort of have a tendency and inclination towards thin fair skinned actresses um you know i think that there are different ways in which we consume these systems that we benefit from and we don't really question it um there's definitely a lot of unlearning that needs to be done you know even like the fat phobia that we have in our own indian communities um the idea that a woman loses her fertility and thus loses her whole personality after a certain age um it's so deeply rooted i think that one thing i've realized is i call it breaking the generational trauma and i can work on myself and my cousins and and to an extent have these difficult conversations with them i think it's slightly harder for me to have conversations with my father and my mother um you know they they for them like hinduism is like central to their existence and it's yeah. really hard to unlearn those things right and like unless they are actively involved in breaking that own generational trauma and realizing that some of their harmful beliefs have been taught you know by previous generations they are still upholding those structures i look at my dad as being this brahmin extremely casteist man you know that i'm battling between you know my love for him as a father but also sort of my disdain and my extreme 
you know we we are not able to sort of get, talk on the same issues and so how do you deal with that i think that's an issue that many people are dealing with is like oh but i grew up eating a particular food like i didn't know that brahman food was casteist uh you know and i didn't know going to a temple is casteist and i'm like yeah actually all of those things i know it's hard for you to deal with but you really need to heal and break past that that letting go of these casteist ideologies has nothing to do with losing yourself as a person it just simply means that you are willing to be part of rebuilding a structure that's equal for everybody yeah it's it just becomes so core to our identity you know yeah. so that we becomes difficult for us to understand that it's problematic i feel like see when see when i'm talking about my mom it's so difficult for her to give up on something that she's believed for say four decades yeah. i mean she was somebody who thought that premarital sex was a huge sin okay from that to i'm talking about like say Three four years ago, and at that point of time, I tried having conversations, and she wouldn't. It was such a question of morality for her that she would get offended, and she would just not. She was not willing to have that conversation. So it has taken me such a long time, but you know, showing her videos, and I remember I showed her that video. Uh, there's a TED talk called the Virginity Fraud. With the they brought this huge crunchy, and they're showing that it's not a wall. It's literally a you know it looks like a scrunchy and nothing is breaking and like it's taken me years and finally when we had the talk like some i think few months ago six seven months ago and she was like oh my god i'm so old and i didn't know this about my own body she had this one enlightenment and i was so happy Aww. Yeah, I think that's part of it, right? It's like there's just an extreme lack of like education around their own bodies and how systemic structures work. Especially like yeah, I've been able to yeah. reform my mom a little bit more than my dad. Uh, yeah. yeah, and my dad is not willing to have conversations with me. I'm like, okay, I'll do it one person, like one step at a time. Exactly, and I think that that that's you know we we can we can try till the end of their days, you know, sort of breaking these casteist ideologies. Um and I think that you, you know you can incorporate it I think that they'll be like oh she's modern she's changed you know like for my for my wedding I don't want a brahman ceremony so my husband and I are coming up with a secular ceremony and you know I had to introduce that to my parents but they're still so hellbent on getting a, a brahman priest to sort of choose certain days um which is also mm-hmm. so just like really disturbing to me and and so it's really for that reason the wedding has been delayed for like 2 years um but i think it's paramount no. right i think you know you're setting an example and i'm working with my dad and every conversation gets tougher and tougher till one day it gets easier um and i'm yeah. i i guess i have that personality where i'm very persistent and very stubborn um and my dad says she's anti brahman and i'm like yeah well i'm sorry that's what you think about me that's exactly what i am Uh, my mom gets upset. She called me and she's like, "Are you really anti-Brahman? Like that's literally who we are." And I'm like, "I'm so sorry that you think of that as being your personality trait. Like you know, being Brahman is your personality, but that's exactly what the caste system does, right? It indoctrinates people into thinking that doing these rituals and being a part of these rituals and having these rituals as your life is literally your life, and that's who you are as a person." um i think that you know mm. when i moved to the states and also like looking for other options for myself i developed other aspects of my identity i don't think my parents had that opportunity right like they are literally just children in a cult called brahmanism mm. and they cannot get out yeah i mean in 
like I live in Kolkata, which is like West Bengal. There's these group of women who started, I think, few five, six years ago. They started. They are basically Sanskrit professors who studied the, you know, the holy scriptures in detail, and they started being priests. Okay, they're not Brahmin. They're women, and women were forbidden to, you know, carry out these rituals because it was supposed to be done by Brahmin men. And so, when you call them to, you know, get you yourself married. they don't perform certain rituals there's the kanya daan which really means ki you know a woman is a property and you're giving it away oh my god so there are these yeah there are these particular rituals which they do not perform at all and in the beginning they were they faced a huge backlash and they were not allowed and you know slowly gaining traction like in bengal i know for a matter of fact so yeah <laughs> Also, I mean, when you talk about you know, talking to your parents, I feel like when I'm having a conversation with my mom, uh, I feel like she realizes things because for for the longest time she thought whatever her lived experiences were they were normal, and when I start pointing out that you know that what you faced were extremely wrong, you know, maybe it, uh, it was borderline psychological abuse that you didn't realize. So it's her experiences also which makes it a little easier for her to understand. When I'm talking about patriarchy or oppression or discrimination, you know, she suddenly realizes that my lived experiences, which I thought was normal, was actually very problematic. So that way, it's easier to have that conversation with her than my father, who probably perpetuated that you know, discrimination. Yeah, like I would often tell my mom, I'd be like, you know, and I think they don't realize that there are many other forms of like control, like whether or not they. There's like physical restriction, but there's also like financial restriction, right? Like I often talk about with my mom. Yeah. Like she's like, I don't know how to do finances. I'm like, okay, is it because no one has taught you how to do finances, or is it you know, is it also because that mm. you know my dad is often like, I'll handle it, I'll handle it, I'll handle it, and I love him, and you know he has been a great father to me. Mm. But I also think sometimes he perpetuates systems of patriarchy where he is adamant on handling the finances. doesn't really trust my mom with the finances it's something that she hasn't really learned and i think that's another way to you continue to control sort of you know to control women and to give them sort to be able to so there's move there's restriction of movement there's sexual oppression so you know my parents are separated mm. but my dad still sort of handles her finances um she's afraid to like date or remarry in public um because she's afraid of the scorn it'll mm. bring from the rest of the family right so the sexual oppression there's like restriction of movement um there's financial control there's emotional control um and and all of these different paths need to be broken so whenever i have conversations with my mom i'm like hey mom you know that you know my husband actually doesn't do any of these things to me but you're still sort of stuck in this but she's like no he cares for me and this is how it's always been i'm like just because it's always been that way doesn't need, mean it needs to be this way and having boundaries doesn't mean you're disrespecting the other person right and i think that's another bigger conversation about consent mm-hmm. and boundaries um this idea that it's collective like even though they they're still family so it's fine i'm like well mm, i don't know about that <laughs> yeah i think in brown houses boundaries is such a such an alien concept people are like oh my god i love you how how can you just say that you need space It's like that's exactly. how it works i love you too but i need my space and people just don't understand that also when you were talking about you know internalized misogyny which we as 
women had you know in our teenage years one example that keeps coming to my mind is my school so i went to a catholic missionary school okay there were nuns running my school who just despised female sexuality <laughs> so after, yeah and it was i mean i'm laughing i would probably laugh at it today but when i look back i can't imagine how traumatic it was for a 12 year old so that god lent to be measured every day you know and i can't believe that that's how it was and i thought it was discipline and it was rules that i was following the scotland for measured every day and you know things were said to us like oh why do you want to show your legs and like that's so problematic and these people who would say were teachers or sisters we looked up to them we respected them so i remember you know as a 13 year old i would slut shame people in my class So why do you think you know female sexuality or female pleasure to that extent is such a huge taboo, even like especially among women and men? I mean, especially women, if we talk about because that's such a complicated topic. Why do you think female sexuality is so scary and a taboo in India, especially or you know in South Asia? In our communities, where we often have. Um, you know where there's not even often where there is such a strong patriarchal hold and there's such a idea that women are inferior to men there is this idea that them exploring their sexuality is sort of the downfall of patriarchy and it's not happening through the male gaze or through the control of a man and for a man and so and and the internalized misogyny that many other women have um also plays out in this right and like the policing with the so called auntie culture which which calling someone auntie is also problematic right that you're assigning these people as no longer having a personality outside and excluding them from our overall feminism um but it's it's this generally i think that's also the idea that women cannot explore their sexuality that sexuality has to be a very straight shooter way right it's the madonna whore complex that every woman has to be a virginal be pure and never having touched a man and if she has had sex outside of marriage if she's had premarital sex or if she's queer then there is something wrong with her and she's sort of quote unquote damaged goods and no one is going to marry her I remember my dad telling me that when he found out I had a boyfriend and we had sex is like who's going to marry you now and I'm like well thank you so much for assigning my worth to whether or not I'm a virgin uh but I think there are just so many factors yeah. that sort of move in come into this play right like I think that if my parents found out that I had a sex toy it, it it's such a it's such a big taboo <laughs> idea that boys will be boys and boys can go out and you know stay out at night and can do whatever they want and be rowdies and have have sort of this player lifestyle and that's totally fine and he'll settle down when he's found the one but this doesn't seem to apply to women right and their lives um again because of all of these strong patriarchal ideologies on who and what a woman should be yeah even with um, men i feel this is an example of man is alcoholic or a drug addict or anything absolutely problematic or racist everything is fine the ultimate solution that families put forward is you know get him married as if the woman is a rehabilitation yeah, I mean, center uh, i would also refer to it as alcohol use disorder or you know 
any cocaine use or dis- use disorder because i think that addiction is is more uh physical and mental than yeah, i think yeah. it is mm-hmm. and that's another taboo right is i think that a lot of fault falls on the the men but of course again you're right i think that they are often like the solution is oh he's unemployed get him married or oh there's something wrong with him get him married um there's such an emphasis like you said that he, oh he'll settle down when he meets the right woman it's like no how about he settles down before he meets someone and then he treats her like a human being and not someone who has to like necessarily nanny him or take care of him yeah Also, if they they want to talk about intimate partner violence, I feel it's you know a topic which is not addressed because there are there are no right redressal mechanisms. Say in India is one of the only thirty six countries that does not criminalize criminalize marital rape, and not even you know if we don't even go to the extent of rape in you know relationships. the amount of abuse that happens emotional psychological sexual uh you know how do you think a woman you know a young woman who's navigating the whole idea of dating uh you know can figure out what are the red flags because i feel uh you know you mentioned how we are so consumed with pop culture and we don't even know what is abuse and what is love so we kind of get confused between that so how can one you know navigate intimate partner violence figure out the red flags before yeah that's a definitely a, a more complex conversation to have outside of the podcast for sure but i can point out some um i think that we're all raised in a system and some of it perpetuates abuse a little bit more in you know certain circumstances than others and in 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 a case where you're getting into a relationship Um love bombing is something that you know we have seen a lot of uh so love bombing is essentially when you meet someone and they make you the focus of of their attention and they convince you that no one else loves you as much as they love you they try to isolate you from everybody uh you know the idea is to have absolute control over the other person uh the second that I would off- I would say is you know they build you up so that they can break you down and so you know having them they criticize you they sort of um what used to impress them no longer impresses them so you're only trying to impress them um you know they don't have any respect for your consent they don't have any respect for your boundaries and i i think we also see a lot of that in in the media right where they're like oh it's it's called um token resistance so token resistance is this idea that oh they will eventually say yes Um so even when they're saying no they're actually saying yeah. yes. Um and we've seen this right where men get really yeah. like they just keep on asking because they're like it's it's not a no until it's a yes. Um and so that's definitely a red yeah. flag if they're having a lot of difficulty saying taking the answer no. And we've also seen men who get really upset over rejection. Um I think you can tell a lot from a man in the way yeah. that he handles rejection. Um so if if they're having a hard time you're yeah. respecting your boundaries and accepting no for an answer then that's also a really really big red flag. Um someone who thinks that persistence is the way to get into a girl's heart is another red flag. You know, you're not like other girls. Um that's a red flag. Um I've never met anyone yeah. like you before. You're so different than all the other girls I've met. All of them are so modern but you're so homely. Red flag. Um you know, sort of question 
those ideologies that they hold like who are they as a person and i always recommend i mean at least in my case is being friends with the person having deep conversations with them are they capable of having introspective conversations and self reflecting because you want to be with someone who is self reflective you know see how they take others around them how are they influencing their work with activism and those are things that are important to me i'm not saying that's necessarily important to someone else but you know my husband and i yeah. would have these conversations of like where do you see yourself in like 5 years you know what's your relationship with your parents what's your relationship with money um you know how, how what do you think about this issue it, it became very it will become very evident and apparent from you know the beginning hopefully um if someone is manipulative or not Yeah. Even to me, Ma, you know, I keep saying that how politics plays a huge role in how I determine my relationships, even friendships. And people say that, oh, you know, you shouldn't bring politics into friendships. I was like, you know, what a person believes in their political ideology kind of reflects the person they are. I mean, you yeah. can't be a supporter of the right wing in India. who kind of is so caustic yeah. and sexist and misogynistic and be my friend i mean that that doesn't work out so i mean politics I mean, not when their personality yeah. and their entire like being is rooted in the oppression of others i don't think that's acceptable that's what many people don't see mm-hmm. is like actually it's not it's not yeah. uh, it's not a disagreement over political rights it's a disagreement over like basic human rights in my opinion not Yeah, your basic yeah, value. Yeah, I think the left mm-hmm. is is you know completely clear and the way to go. But I think that we are we are working towards finding a structure or a political structure that works for everyone. Yeah. So to end, I would just ask you know what is that one advice you would want to give your younger self? You know, if you would just go back or. any young person listening yeah, to it i would definitely say that a lot of us growing up are often told to follow a script especially women i think that there's a script that you only have to be a certain way and if you only study a certain degree that you know you'll be respected um take a chance on yourself bet on yourself i know that i have done that multiple times um you know even you know you know mm-hmm. I know it's easier for you to think that you know I'll just go with the flow and see where it takes me and of course there's a lot of resistance and in some families there's violence and the idea that or not even the idea this they will cut you off or that um you bring disgrace or dishonor to the family I know that these are are tough uh but trust me once you get out on the other side it gets much better um when you stand up for what you believe in what happens in homes is tone policing you know this volume which you should speak what you should wear these are things which we women are yeah. told to be followed so to be able to do your thing you know just telling a young person you know you do you is such a huge relief at you seriously yeah i mean if i had followed my script that was meant for me i don't i don't think that i would be here today having this conversation i think that my life has changed for the better because i took certain risks and because i continue to believe in what was important to me 